Now, if you've got your Bibles this morning, go ahead and let's turn to Genesis chapter 48. And we're kind of going to wrap up the story a little bit, but as we stand and open God's Word together, I'm just going to read here in the beginning the uh, first four verses, and we'll look at much of chapter 48, 49, and 50. Don't worry, I won't keep you here till 2 o'clock doing that. There's more here than we could ever get to, but we're going to draw the net on this season, um, this looking at a reason to dream, and I pray that dreams have been revived in your heart during this time, and I would say thanks for all the encouraging, um, whether it's been through emails, uh, through conversations that we've had, but so many of you have talked about what this series has meant to you. It's meant a lot to me. God, God preaches this to me as I'm in preparation week after week, and so looking at the life of Joseph, and we'll especially look at his father Jacob today as we wrap this up with looking at inspiring dreamers. I found you place Genesis 48. It says, sometime after this, Joseph was told, your father is weaker. So he set out with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and blessed me. He said to me, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make many nations come from you, and I will give this land as an eternal possession to your descendants. Wow, what a promise. We sang this morning, his promise still stands. And late in his life, Jacob is given a testimony of God's faithfulness to his son Joseph, who could probably have said, Dad, I know that. I get it. I've seen that. But what a testimony at the end of one's life. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we will all be able to testify day in and day out of your faithfulness, that as we sang a moment ago, your promise still stands. And Lord, we may go through seasons that that place us in dark tunnels this side of heaven, Lord, your word says we see through a glass dimly, and Lord, one day you will help us to understand it all. As the old songwriter said, we'll we'll understand it better by and by. But Lord, help us to live by faith and not by sight today with glimpses of your glory and faithfulness all along the way. May we be inspired and may we inspire others and future generations to dream for the glory of God We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Remember reading the story of a conversation. It's actually a a fable, and I don't know who would get credit for having written this fable. Probably that famous writer, Anonymous. But it was a fable about a crane that had landed at a beautiful pond, and there was a beautiful swan swimming on the pond, and the crane began to dig around for snails, and the swan said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm, I'm looking for snails. And he said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm just imagining what heaven is. And he said, what do you mean heaven? What is heaven? And he said, oh, heaven is a beautiful place where there's the, the, the perfect pond, and it's, it's going to be great, whatever swan heaven would be like, but it's going to be great when I'm there. And 
and you, you'll have everything that you've ever imagined, everything that you could dream of, and there's going to be beautiful streets, and there's going to be wonderful homes and places to rest. And finally, the crane interrupted the swan and said, are there any snails there? And the swan said, well, I don't know. I've never heard of snails being in heaven. He said, well, then I'm not interested. I'm just looking for snails. And so that fable was told to talk about how so many times we can't think about eternity because we're so caught up in what it is that we're looking for right here and right now. And no matter how we dress it up, it's all no more than snails. You can call it escargot if you like, but it's no more than snails this side of heaven. We need to be living for something and longing for something that is even greater than what we will experience this side of eternity. C.S. Lewis said that the fact that we have certain longings, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says the, the fact that we have certain desires within us that cannot possibly be met in this world must mean that we were created for another world. We were created for something that's better than all of this. Now, here's the thing about our dreams. We can have dreams that outlive us this side of heaven. Dreams often outlive the dreamer when we pass them along, when we inspire other dreamers along the way, when we live a life with a a good testimony, as I was sharing recently at the funeral home, that Proverbs 22, 1 says, A good name is more to be desired than great riches. And so I've been able to attend uh, a couple of funerals lately of family members in this church, uh, patriarchs, grandfathers that had good names. And that makes you want to reflect, does it not? You want to leave this world with a good name name, inspiring others to live and to dream for the glory of God. Well, we're going to read about two funerals in the text this morning. Jacob, we'll spend a lot of time talking about him, but a little bit in closing with Joseph as his story comes to an end and the closing of the book of Genesis. What did Jacob and Joseph leave us? What do we learn from their funerals? I tell you, I think we learned the importance of a few things. The first one this morning I want to share with you is we we learn about a gracious blessing on future generations. A gracious blessing on future generations. How many of you can think of those who have gone on before you and you know that today your life is blessed because of what they meant to you while they were here? Just raise your hand. Is it not all of us? Can we not all say somebody has gone on to glory, and they blessed future generations by how they live and by what they left, not materially, but because of their name. You go back and you see in chapter 47, chapter 47, let's look down toward the end of the chapter, uh, verses 27 and 28, Israel speaking, remember, uh, Jacob was named Israel, settled in the land of Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property in it and became fruitful and very numerous. That's part of God's faithfulness. They were multiplying. Now Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years, and his lifespan was 147 years. Wow, what a life. So I like to think of this time in Egypt being as the fourth quarter of his life, but 17 years might be one-fourth of the average lifespan today, but it certainly wasn't 
in that day. But, the, but here he is, we can call it in the latter half of the fourth quarter of life, discovering that God's promise still stands. Dreams do come true this side of heaven, but ultimately it's in glory that we understand what it was really all about. And so he calls and he's going to establish a covenant here. It says, when the time drew near for him to die, he called his son Joseph in verse 29. And he called him to him. He says, if I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise me you will deal with me in faithful love. Now, this intimate gesture, this is something we don't practice today, right? No dad has said, son, come here, now take hold of my thigh, you know. But that was something in, in, in the Middle East at this time that was, um, or the Near Eastern world, that had kind of become a tradition that when you made a, uh, a covenant, when you made an oath, they would place the hand on the thigh. But he said, I want you to promise me you're not going to bury me in Egypt, Verse 30, when I lie down with my fathers, carry me away from Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And Joseph said, I will do what you've asked. And Jacob said, swear to me. So Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed in thanks at the head of his bed. And then he shared the testimony that we see in chapter 48, those first four verses, that God had appeared to him, God had made these promises, and now he had seen God's faithfulness, a man on his deathbed saying, God has been good to me. And then he begins to pass on this gracious blessing to future generations. We've talked a few weeks ago about paying it forward, but here he's talking about this gracious blessing that he's going to bestow on especially Joseph, this faithful son. When I read Joseph's blessing from his father. I can't help but think that God has told us when we're faithful in a few things, he'll make us ruler or responsible for many things. And so he goes on to say in verse 5 of chapter 48, your two sons born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are now mine. I'm adopting my grandsons here and I'm going to bless them and give them a portion of the inheritance as if they were born to me. Ephraim and Manasseh belong to me just as Reuben and Simeon do. Children born to you after them will be yours and will be recorded under the names of their brothers with regard to their inheritance. When I was returning from Padan to my sorrow, uh, Rachel died along the way. Some distance from Ephrath in the land of Canaan, I buried her there along the way to Ephrath that is, and he's referring to, and the author here, Moses is telling this, is talking about Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons God has given me here. Who are these boys? You were just talking about them, Grandpa. They're right here with you. And so Jacob said, bring them to me and I will bless them. Now Jacob's eyesight was poor because of old age. He could hardly see. And Joseph brought them to him and he kissed and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I have expected to see your face again, but now God, or I never expected to see your face again, but now God has let me see your offspring. And Joseph took them from his father's knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Then Joseph took, took them both with his right hand, Ephraim, toward Israel's left, and with his left hand, Manasseh, toward Israel's right. 
and brought them to Israel. But Israel stretched out his right hand and put it on the head of Ephraim, the younger. Typically, the right hand would be on the older, and you would give the a double portion of the blessing to the older one. But crossing his hands, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God, and by the way, when somebody blesses your kids, doesn't it bless you? <laughs> Aren't you excited when that blessing is passed on to the, the, the next generation? He says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, may he bless these boys and may they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow and be numerous within the land. When you see a listing now, sometimes there's two different lists of the 12 tribes. Some would even say, well, there were 13 tribes. Sometimes you'll see a list that might include Joseph's names. At other times, you'll see Ephraim and Manasseh, but it will leave out the tribe of Levi, which became the priestly tribe because they didn't inherit the tribal land. They were responsible for the tabernacle and the temple when it came to the distribution of the land. And so these boys were blessed. Future generations were blessed. Not only did you see these boys being blessed in this text, you see Joseph and his family, it seems like in his lineage now, they're going to have even more responsibility. Jesus, again, as I said a moment ago in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 23 he tells the story, the parable of the stewards, and, he, and the good steward hears, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things I'm going to make you responsible for or ruler over many things. And so this faithful son, Joseph, who was faithful even when the father wasn't around, is now being blessed, and the generations after him are being blessed. And that blessing is not only including privileges, it includes great responsibilities. And then when you get into chapter 49, the first 20, 28 verses makes all kinds of predictions about what's going to happen with Jacob's sons, and, and it kind of defines the tribes of Israel and in what ways they will struggle and in what ways they will prosper. There are blessings that are pronounced on solid character, but there are also curses that are attached to some bad choices. You see that when you get into the, the book of Deuteronomy, the second law that's given before they go into the promised land. You see these blessings and these curses. Man, if you, if you honor God and you live for his glory, here's how you're going to be blessed. But if you don't honor God and you don't live for his glory, here's where you're going to face great struggle. And whether each family group, whether each tribe got a good word in chapter 28 or got a kind of a, a scary warning in, uh, excuse me, in chapter 49, whether they got a good word or a scary warning, they all needed God's grace. That thread of redemption, everybody, whether, whether they kind of heard a word that made them think, man, in the eyes of Jacob, I'm, I'm pretty good. Or whether they got uh, a warning that, man, we're going to suffer the consequences for some bad choices along the way. All of them needed the grace of God in their lives. And that's why I think there's more verses written about, other than Joseph's family, there are more verses written about Judah and the importance of this 
son and this tribe, this family group, because it's through the line of Judah that God is going to show his grace and his redemption for all the other tribes and ultimately to all other people in the world. And so I would love to take time with each one of these families, but let's look down uh, at verses 8 through 12 in chapter 48 and see what he said about the family of Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion and like a lioness who wants to rouse him. Now, who in Revelation chapter 5 is called the lion of the tribe of Judah? It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Rulers like David and Solomon will start a family lineage. And through that lineage, ultimately, Jesus the Messiah will come into this world. He says, the staff, or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes. Again, I believe looking forward. And a lot of times in Israel, it kind of was even jumping the church age, looking forward to the millennial reign of Christ, the, the consummation of the ages. And it says the obedience of the peoples belong to him. He ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to, a, to the choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. Again, I believe it's a picture of the consummation of the ages, the millennial reign of Christ when he comes, what we would call the second advent, when he comes again to make all things right in this world. Grace and redemption will come through the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. So of all the things that Jacob could have blessed the future generations with, all the things he could have given them at that moment, he gave them Jesus. Of all the things there were to look forward to, it was the grace and redemption that would be found in the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord himself. Did they understand it fully from an Old Testament perspective? I don't think so. But they understood, just like Abraham understood, that if you take God at his word, what gospel he had received, what good news, Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Don't miss the importance of passing on Jesus to future generations in your family, in this church, in this community. Of all the things you could leave generations to come, you might be thinking, boy, I I want to set them up good financially and materially. You might be setting them up for a big fight if you're not careful. You set them up with a walk with God. You teach them how to relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. You show them that there is grace and redemption in Jesus and in none other. Folks, I would rather know that I didn't leave my kids anything but a relationship with Jesus Christ and that they were walking with him and my grandkids. And God willing, if I get to see grandkids and great-grandkids, that they learn to walk with God is so much more important than anything else that I could give them. Don't miss out on that. I remember 
Saturday morning cartoons. My kids are older now. We kind of miss those days, right? But remember Saturday morning cartoons, or maybe some of you when we didn't get cartoons on every station, you didn't, you didn't get Disney Network and all that kind of stuff. We actually got three or four networks, and, and Saturday morning was the only morning you could see cartoons, right? Remember those days? Saturday morning cartoons, like when my kids were little, you got a lot more advertising, especially this time of year. When you got into October and November, you got more advertising than you did cartoons. And so they're interrupting Dora the Explorer, and they're interrupting Bugs Bunny in my day, whatever, to show you what you need. And they could present those toys and those gadgets and those games to where kids are sitting there wide-eyed going, I need that. I can't live without that. And my buddy told me at school he's getting that, and so I've got to have that. And parents get caught up in the game this time of year, and we feel like, man, what, if, what am I going to buy my kids for Christmas this year? And we start our shopping early. What, what are we going to get them? What are we going to get them? Listen, children, teenagers, high school, middle school, and if I could get the ear of the ones up in the kids' center right now, I would say, if your parents are giving you Jesus, that's more important than anything else they could ever give you. Your gracious blessing on future generations is you being able to one day leave this world knowing that they know how to walk with God. A gracious blessing on future generations. Secondly, we see this funeral, this glorious passing of a father of the faith. A glorious passing. You say, Pastor Robbie, glorious? What's glorious about death? Death is an awful thing to have to go through, a, 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 a horrible thing to observe when somebody's at this stage of life like Jacob was. He's a true patriarch of the faith. And listen, Psalm 116 and verse 15 says, how precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Who is a saint? Is it somebody that after they die, maybe years from now, we'll get together with church leadership and we'll vote on sainthood, whether or not they're a saint or not? No, 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 no. The New Testament describes everyone who has been saved and set apart by the Spirit of God, all the called out ones, the ecclesia, the church, were all referred to after salvation as saints. The Bible quits labeling us as a sinner and starts labeling us as a saint, even though we may still battle with the old man and we still walk in the flesh. We become saints set apart ones, made holy ones through faith in Jesus Christ. And Psalm says, how precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. This is a glorious passing of a father of the faith. And I love the language used in here toward the end of chapter 49. I look down at verses 29 through 33. Here's Jacob giving some instructions. He says, I'm about to be, look at this, gathered to my people. I love that. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field in Ephraim the Hittite. The cave is in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, in the land of Canaan. This is the field Abraham purchased from Ephraim the Hittite as a burial site. So I want you to get me there. That's where I want you to bury me. Abraham and his wife Sarah are buried there. Isaac and his wife Rebekah are buried there. And I buried Leah there. Isn't it interesting that Leah felt like the one that was left out, and that's the one where, uh, by whom all of a sudden Jacob is going to be buried by? But it had a lot to do with the fact that Abraham and Isaac were there. The field and the cave in it were purchased from the Hittites. Then Jacob 
When Jacob had finished instructing his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and died. And he was, and here's that phrase again, gathered to his people. Gathered to his people. Who were his people? He had just named them. There's an understanding, even though some scholars refuse to acknowledge it, there's an understanding that there is more to life than what we experience now, that they are going to know and be known in eternity some way or another, that he was going to see Abraham. Can you imagine that? He was going to see Sarah. He was going to see his father Isaac and his mother Rebecca. What an awesome thought that Jacob was just, he knew, hey, I'm almost there with my people. I'm about to be gathered. He was going to see Rachel again. And he was going to hear the well done of God, good and faithful servant. I don't think, according to everything I read in the Bible, we're going to have any problem recognizing people in heaven. Knowing as we were known. No problem recognizing the people we knew in this life, those friends, those family members, those who are in Christ, saved by grace. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We will know him and we will rejoice more than anything to be in his presence. And sometimes I've been guilty as a pastor of of almost discounting the importance of seeing friends and loved ones because I do think we should magnify the fact that we're going to be with Jesus and we won't be able to wait to see him and to praise him and worship him from all eternity. But having said that, the Bible does place significant attention on the fact that we're going to one day be gathered to our people. We're going to see people who have gone on before us. I was coming back from Peru just getting over whatever that Peruvian flu was that Tina was coming down with at the time. And I knew that I was going to be preaching up in West Jefferson, Allie's hometown, when I got back. And I, my body began, the, the fatigue began to set in as I made my way up the road. I had been sick, and I, hadn't, I don't sleep on airplanes. I don't know how many of you can do that. I don't know how you do that. Um, but I don't sleep good on airplanes. And so I needed some energy. And the, a group up there that many of you enjoyed hearing through the years, the Kingsmen, were doing a concert. And right before I preached, they did a song. And, and they did a song that it was one of my favorites back in the 1990s. It was titled, Wish You Were Here. And just to read a few lines for those of you who have never heard the song, it says, I can just see them walking on the shores together. They're talking with Jesus, safe and secure in his love. Friends and loved ones walking in heavenly peace. And I know if they could talk to me now, here's what they'd say to me. Wish you were here. It's such a beautiful place. Wish you were here. Nothing but clear, sunny days. Well, it never rains and no one complains. Man, Baptist preachers can't wait to get to a place one day where no one complains. And we haven't seen a tear. We're having a great time wish you were here. They begin to sing that song, and I thought, man, I'm going to get all teary-eyed, and I'm not going to be able to preach. They begin to sing that song, and I begin to imagine, what is that going to be like? I begin to see my Grandpa Brown's charming smile and thought, yep, I believe he's there. 
I, I began to imagine seeing my, my Papa Lord. You know, one was Grandpa, one was Papa. But I remember seeing my, imagining seeing my Papa Lord because whenever I was by his side, he always had a proud look on his face like this is my grandson hanging out with me. And I, I wondered if it would be like that in heaven when I saw him again. I began to see Tina's brother and her father laughing together like they used to do. And thought, man, that's going to be awesome seeing that again. Or hearing her mother say to me, glad you're here. We need to talk, just the two of us. I began to picture her granddaddy Albert saying, I am so glad that somebody gave me that Gideon Bible where I understood the gospel that gave my heart and my life to Jesus. I started thinking about that, and God reignited a passion in me to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ because I want to be there, and I want my children and grandchildren and all that I can take with me to be there when I'm gathered one day with my people. Look how his life was celebrated. This is a big deal. And I know some of you like to sound all pious and spiritual and all that, and you say, don't, well, don't really make a big deal when I'm gone. You know, put me in a pine box in the backyard and, and that sort of thing. Listen, they threw a celebration here. Joseph, leaning over his father's face, he wept here in chapter 50. He commanded his servants who were physicians to embalm his father. He didn't want the pagan religious crowds to be the ones who would mummify his father. And they took 40 days to complete this process for embalming takes that long back then to do it right. And so he made sure he was well taken care of. He was mourned for 70 days. When the days of mourning were over, Joseph said to Pharaoh's household, If I found favor with you, please tell Pharaoh that my father made me to make an oath saying, I'm about to die. You must bury me in the tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go. Let me bury my father. Then I will return. So Pharaoh said, Go and bury your father in keeping with your oath. Joseph went to bury his father. And all of Pharaoh's servants and the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt went with him, along with all Joseph's household, his brothers and his father's household. And this is a grand funeral that's taking place. Only their children, their sheep and their cattle were left in the land of Goshen. Horses and chariots went up with them, or with him. It was a very impressive procession. I remember watching them this year bring Reverend Dr. Billy Graham's body from Western North Carolina down to Charlotte and thinking, man, what a grand procession as people were standing along the way to pay their respects. And when they reached the threshing floor of Atad, which is across the Jordan, they lamented and they wept loudly, and Joseph mourned seven days for his father. Listen, Jesus even wept with family at the grave of Lazarus, who he was about to bring back. There is nothing unspiritual about being touched deeply by emotion in times of grief and loss. When the, Can- when the Canaanite inhabitants of the land saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a solemn mourning on the part of the Egyptians. Therefore, the place is named Abel Mizraim. It is across the Jordan. So Jacob's sons did for him what he had commanded. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field near Mamre, which Abraham had purchased as a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. After Joseph buried his father, 
he returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone with him to bury his father. They said, let's celebrate this life of a patriarch and let's send him on his way with great, uh, great ceremony. And so it's a big deal. We don't do it to glorify man. We do it to glorify God. We don't do it to glorify a patriarch or a matriarch, but to say, here's a good testimony. And this life has value on the way it impacts others for eternity. And so his life was celebrated. Listen, he, he was revered by his own family, but he was even respected by the Egyptians. I pray that when God calls us home, that even the world will say, man, the world was a better place when they were here. That they made the world a better place. Then we read in verses 22 through 26 that Joseph died. And so I want you to see that there's not only this funeral for Jacob, but there's a and this is your third principle I want you to take with you this morning, a godly affirmation of forgiveness and reconciliation. Perhaps the way Jacob left this world made Joseph say, I want to make sure there's no unfinished business before I leave this world. Funerals have a way of doing that, of making us stop and pause and think, okay, I can't wait to be gathered to my people, but have I got some unfinished, unfinished business to do while I'm here? Actually, go back to verse 15 of chapter 50. We see him making these preparations. When Joseph's brothers saw that the father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the wrong that we caused him. Can you imagine what they were thinking? He's been nice to us because, you know, he has great respect for dad. But now that dad's gone... If he were saving up anything to let us have it, we're in trouble. So they sent message, this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command, say to Joseph, please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the wrong they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. I think partly because He realized that they were still feeling guilty and worried about what might happen, partly because he was still struggling with all of this himself. And his brothers also came to him and bowed down before him and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. I am in the the place of God. I'm not going to start all of a sudden with this Messiah complex. And here's the, listen, this next verse is the theme of Joseph's life. Everything that gives us a reason to dream, the reason that our dreams are revived, comes back to this truth in verse 20. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. He's saying, listen, God is a big God and he's in control and I have forgiven you. Don't be afraid. Verse 21 says, I will take care of you and your little ones. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. He made things right. He said, it's going to be okay. I remember a favorite TV show from my college years. Did anybody else watch Quantum Leap or was it just geeks like me? Did did y'all watch Quantum Leap? Sam Beckett. Man, if we could have traded places with him, right? Because he was trading places with everybody else. 
Sam Beckett would go to some time period. He would inhabit somebody's body. It might be a famous person or it might be a person that nobody knew. But he would go into some time period and he would become somebody and he would need to make things right. He had a limited amount of time before he was going to leap across time and space and inhabit somebody else's body and try to make that situation right. And so all of all the time, he's shaping and changing history through this quantum leap by traveling through time and inhabiting somebody's body. Imagine for a moment that you were in somebody's body and you had a limited amount of time to do what they were supposed to do and make things right, make relationships right, make the actions right so that when when you leap out of that body that history is the better for it you know in a sense that's what's happening because the apostle Paul said this body is only a temporary tabernacle and we're only here for a little while and while we are in this body We're to make things right. We're given the ministry of reconciliation. We need to make sure that our hearts are right with God because we don't know when God's going to call us out. We've seen it again and again and again, even here in our own community. Young people that we would have thought it was way too early were absent from the body, and I pray present with the Lord. Not only do you need to make things right with God, but... You notice this, this is happening after the funeral of the father. Sometimes it's, and listen, I've been a pastor long enough to, to see this again and again. Sometimes everything's okay during the funeral, but you wonder how it's going to be afterwards with the rest of the family. We need to make things right with our brothers. We need to make things right with our sisters. Some of you, when you leave this place today, you need to make a phone call and say, I love you, I forgive you, and make things right. And every day you put that off, your heart grows harder and your pride becomes more and more of a wall between you and somebody you love. You need to make that visit. You need to initiate that conversation. Joseph told his brothers, listen, it's okay. Verse 22, now Joseph and his father's household remained in Egypt. Joseph lived 110 years. He saw Ephraim's sons to the third generation. Wow. His great-grandchildren. The sons of Manasseh's son, Machir, were recognized by Joseph. He's making things right with future generations. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from the land, from this land to the land that He had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he made the Israelites make an oath. When God comes to your aid, you will carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt after he had made things right. Oh, he was walking with his God, but there were some other people he had to let off the hook, right? Say, I forgive you. I'm letting it go. I'm not living with that bitterness. God's God and I'm not. He loved and he made things right. What about you?
Do you know that today that you're walking in right relationship with God? Is your life making a difference? Are you, are you in this body doing what God's called you to do for a temporary time? And are you making things right with others and helping them to also have that relationship with God? Do your children and your grandchildren know how to walk with God? Are they passionate about serving God? You've got business to do if not. And we don't know how long we're here for. Would you bow your heads with me?